This is the podcast for the journal Neuropsychopharmacology. I'm Cynthia Graber. It's understood in epidemiological research that women who experience trauma during puberty are at significantly higher risk for affective disorders such as depression and anxiety when they become pregnant. And so Tracy Bale, professor in the departments of psychology and psychiatry at the University of Maryland in Baltimore, has done a number of studies using mice to try to model and understand this effect. In her latest paper in the journal Neuropsychopharmacology, she and her colleagues set out to study just what was happening to make the mouse brain so vulnerable to stress and trauma during puberty and how this was activated during the hormonal onslaught of pregnancy. In the study, they subjected mice to stressors at puberty, and then the animals recovered. About a month later, the female animals became pregnant, and the team studied the impacts. And what they saw in the mice, similar to what happens in humans, is that the stress hormones, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal or HPA axis, are lower. And people often think that because your stress hormones are lower, that must be a good thing. Uh, But it's not. So, for instance, in cases, there's a a cohort of uh, individuals with major depressive disorder that have a blunted stress response. Oftentimes, people with PTSD are known to have a blunted stress response. So it's not that stress hormones are driving the disorder, but they can be an outcome or a predictor that something has changed and how your brain is responding to stress in the environment. So we know that in our mouse model, during pregnancy, there is a significant reduction when you present those animals with any kind of stressor. For some reason, they don't produce a normal response. And that may be a dysregulation or a dysfunction that puts them at greater risk. So if they were humans, obviously, to present with postpartum depression or a way in which they're not appropriately coping. And so we wanted to understand where in the brain and what has been changed by that early life adversity. So what did you do to try to tease out what was going on in the mouse brain? So there's many parts of your brain in all mammals that are important for how you respond to stress, right? There's your higher order structures such as your cortex. There's uh, brainstem and thalamic regions that sort of are relays to integrate stress experience. But the sort of the quintessential aspect of the neurons that are they're essential for how we respond to stress are in the hypothalamus. And so we began by looking in the part of the hypothalamus where we know a lot about the neurons that are important for regulating your stress response. And we started by asking if it's a blunted stress response, is it because it's either a gas or a break question? Is it because there's not enough gas, not enough activation input, so in this case, glutamatergic input, or is there too much break, meaning is there too much GABAergic input. How did you try to figure this out? So we started by a process of elimination. We went through all of the obvious, is it differences in estrogen? Is it differences in levels of progesterone? And the answer was no, none of those things that were obvious were different in terms of overall levels. So it didn't seem to be a peripheral change that we had programmed. So, okay, we had evidence then that it was central. And then we began looking at these neurons. And so what do we know about hormones? What is specific and unique to pregnancy that we wouldn't see it prior to pregnancy? Well, one of the hormones in pregnancy that is very high is progesterone. And progesterone can act uh, as a neuromodulator, especially can act in in a way in which it binds to receptors that are important for GABAergic function. So it can act in a way that, that heightens GABA tone, meaning this could be a way in which if there is a difference, maybe not in the levels of progesterone, right? So it's not not a difference in the amount of gas you're putting in the car, 
But if there was a difference in the way that you were applying the break, you could get a greater break or a faster break. And that's what we were looking at using electrophysiology and other physiological techniques to say, do we have evidence as to how these breaks are being applied to these neurons? And so we whittled it all the way down to say, if the DNA in these specific neurons were harboring uh, uh, an epigenetic or a chromatin modification, we could maybe read that with this ataxic assay. Uh, and so the postdoctoral fellow, Katie Morrison, who's the first author on these studies, was able to determine using this very sophisticated uh, methodology that in fact there was evidence, strong evidence, that all of the signals around GABA regulation were increased in these neurons in this brain region. So that supported the idea that this adversity that happened during a particular window of time programmed a lasting effect on the, in the DNA of these neurons. You tested male mice, too, by submitting them to the same stressors at puberty and then flooding their brains with the same hormones the female mice produced during pregnancy. And you found that male mice were just as susceptible to the impact of the pregnancy hormones. So it really points to this one-two punch, the changes in the brain that the stress caused at puberty and then the impact of the hormonal changes, right? Right. So we think of this as the fact that the massive hormonal changes happening in pregnancy and then the massive reduction of those hormones that happen at birth which again puts women's brains in a very different dynamic state as a result of all of that hormonal change, that in fact it's, it's unmasking this early programming such that they're presenting with a greater risk. Now, does that mean the combination of adversity plus pregnancy or perimenopause or other changes that happen for women across the lifespan are predictive not necessarily. It just says that in combination with probably other genetic risk factors that we don't know solely about yet, so those might be things, you know, risk factors in different alleles or small nucleotide polymorphisms that put you already at a risk is compounded by early life adversity and that dynamic hormonal state. So why women? Well, because women are the ones that have these really big fluxes in their hormones. And for individuals, some women, it's greater than others. And some women are more sensitive to, sensitive to it to, than others, right? So it's no doubt that it's not just one. It's a combination of things. So it's the adversity and experiences that you've had. It's your genetic background. And then it's these unique windows across the lifespan. What are ways this can translate into clinical care? Well, one of the, one, the big picture is really trying to understand the unique vulnerability of women across uh, periods of time such as pregnancy and postpartum to understand who's at risk. Once we understand the who, then we can better predict who might need more help, but also to better understand the mechanisms to help design better therapeutics. So along the lines of these studies, one of the first real drugs in a very long time approved for depression, but really related to postpartum depression is brexanolone. And so we also authored recently a commentary on the use of brexanolone uh, and other drugs like it that are coming out. Brexanolone is working on this same sort of things that I'm talking about. It's working on these unique GABA receptor subunits, which uh, are throughout the brain, but are, are also in the hypothalamus. And it might help sort of to figure out how the... So, so brexanolone is really just a derivative of something that acts uh, as a progesterone 
um, and, and act, can act as a modulator at these GABA receptors. And so is it that particular women or cohorts of women are more vulnerable because they have a, an increased activity and so being able to utilize brexanolone to really dampen down the activity to prevent or to rescue their depression? I mean, these are studies that, that are not known, that still need to be uh, completed, but uh, pharmaceutical companies now are very much interested in, in these targets and where and how they act. It seemed in the paper that you were concerned that brexanolone might actually have a negative impact. Well, that is a question that based on our outcome and based on Katie's attack seek data, was that there may be a need to try and establish in cohorts of women based on our studies and other people's studies as well, which women will respond favorably versus which women might actually have a more detrimental or negative response to that based again on if you already have a blunted HPA response, which suggests you don't have the need for something to further blunt it, right? So a further blunting may actually be detrimental. And so something simple out of our studies that might suggest you could easily screen women who you're considering treating for do they have a heightened HPA stress response, or do they have a blunted? And if they had a blunted, maybe you would consider they may not benefit from from brexanolone. This is the podcast for the journal Neuropsychopharmacology. To read the article discussed in the podcast, go to www.nature.com slash NPP. I'm Cynthia Graber.